You're listening to 1968 in Hindsight, a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to bring historical perspective to contemporary issues. My name is Jason Steinhauer. And my name is Paul Steggy. In this podcast miniseries, we'll be taking a look at key issues facing our world today and showing that to better understand them, we have to look back to 1968. A closer look at that iconic year can help us think about these issues in new ways and perhaps get us one step closer to finding solutions. Today, the word development is a buzzword in government and non-governmental organizations, particularly in the context of aid to Africa. Development has often been imagined as the means by which Western powers can assist African nations in transitioning to modern societies. In this episode, we're going to explore development within histories of independence, colonialism, and decolonization. Already in 1968, and indeed in the years leading up to it, Development was framed as the method to transition African nations to newly independent states from former colonial territories. But by 1968, African nations that had become independent following the Second World War were running up against the realities of what independence meant, and they struggled to exercise their newfound political and individual freedoms. Africa 1968 showed that the legacies of colonialism would not be so easy to untangle. It's a complicated history, and to start we reached out to historian Ryan Irwin. My name is Ryan Irwin. I'm an associate professor at history at the University of Albany. My area of research is decolonization and U.S. foreign policy. I think of decolonization as the transfer of political sovereignty to states that had formerly been part of, in this case, European empires. I think there's, there's an open-ended debate to be had about when decolonization starts, but I tend to think about if you're going to tell a story about the late 1960s, I tend to, to teach it. I tend to think about it in my own writing as a story that begins in the late 1940s. So let's go back to the late 1940s and into the 1950s. For it was then that newly independent nations rallied together to become a force in international politics. New nations sought to create a coherent political bloc that could achieve legitimacy on the international stage. If you're going to to have a post-colonial future, it has to be rooted in a common African nation or a common African personality. The best strategy African leaders believed was through diplomacy at the United Nations. By using the UN to confront racism and other ills, African nations believed that they would force great powers, such as the United States, Great Britain, and France, to end their practices of racism on the African continent. The United States wholeheartedly welcomes the admissions into the United Nations of the newly independent states of Africa and the state of Cyprus. That's the voice of U.S. Secretary of State Christian A. Herder at the opening of the General Assembly in 1960. In 1946, there were 35 member states in the U.N. By 1970, there were 127. The new members were overwhelmingly non-white and recently independent from colonial rule. The admission of the new states today marks the beginning of a long and fruitful collaboration of these countries in the work of the United States. Nations. As one of their new partners, we extend to them our warmest welcome. It also unleashes, I think, this really interesting sense of optimism on the part of, of these states that get recognized. You see in the early 1960s this attempt to kind of flex your muscles and see what the, what the outer limits of the possible are. Is if you can get a large majority of states to rally around a resolution saying, that colonialism has to end, it would follow that there are there, there's going to be consequences. If, if you can create a general assembly that says racism is illegitimate, 
and, and no country, if they want to be a member of the United Nations, can be racist, it would follow that that would have, have consequences. And these are all things that these African states do in, in New York City in the immediate aftermath of, of, the, of, of their independence. And so the fact that you have these, these actors that are, that are making these speeches in the General Assembly, you can't ignore it. General Assembly debates are on the front page of the New York Times. By 1968, however, the optimism had turned to pessimism. African nations successfully passed symbolic resolutions, but they could not move the United Nations or the great powers to action. As optimism around the UN steadily faded, international cohesion began to fracture, and internal divisions within these new nations began to emerge. You start to see a whole series of military coups kind of cascade into all types of places. You also see in, in Nigeria, yeah, in 67, but, but by 68, it's, 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 a, it's a crisis, an international crisis, the civil war, right, where a part of Nigeria secedes. Nigeria had been artificially created by the British. Its people had little allegiance to the state, but rather to their particular ethnic groups. Ethnic tensions escalated into a series of massacres and propelled the eastern part of the country, Biafra, to secede, plunging the country into civil war. The Biafra crisis, I think, is, is, um, you know, is, is ambiguous and even bloodier. There is no attempt by the part of the UN in Nigeria to, to actually get involved and to broker a, a peace because nobody believes that the UN has the ability to do that uh, any, anymore. The United Nations and the United States asserted that the Nigerian conflict was for Nigerians to decide. In the meantime, famine and starvation began to afflict Biafran refugees. Biafran allies in Europe and the U.S. mounted a public relations campaign to bring the Biafran cause to Western attention. In summer 1968, it became a cause célèbre in the United States, Canada, France, England, Ireland, Switzerland, Italy, and Israel. Western nonprofits mobilized massive amounts of aid to be delivered to the Biafran people. In July 1968, the State Department received 150 letters and telegrams per week asking the U.S. to intervene. Following a Life magazine article on Biafra, that number shot up to 4,500 per week. Incorporated into the figures were more than 1,000 telegrams criticizing the UN ambassador for asserting that the Nigerian civil war was a matter for Africans to decide. There's less optimism about the ability of the United Nations to affect change, less optimism about African nation states as having the clout to, to affect change. And then even if you pan back even farther and look at the, the, the project of African unity, um, you know, the, the dream of a, of a unified African state, an African personality that takes form in an African country that will be a, a powerhouse on the international stage has started to fragment just because of some of the inevitable differences that come into sharp relief between you know, North Africa, East Africa, West Africa, Central Africa, and, and Southern, Southern Africa. So across the board, I think if, the, if decolonization is sort of rooted in this idea that, that you can achieve progress through development, that power can come from unity, um, it is the experience of independence that underscores the, the difficulty of, of delivering progress through development in, initiatives, uh, because there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers, and there's, not everybody's going to progress on the, same, on the same timeline, and that leads to a backlash against political leaders, as well as the, the problems of, of that formula, power through unity. Um, ultimately, it, there are different visions of, of what unity means. The Nigerian civil war demonstrated the complexity of the challenges facing African nations in the wake of independence. Development in the context of national independence meant participation in Western geopolitical structures. But 
by 1968, it was clear that those structures had severe shortcomings and struggled to deliver tangible improvements in people's lives. So much of the rhetoric is about building these solidarities. So much of the politics was about uh, achieving an African political uh, identity, but also an African economic identity, etc. So all of these things are sort of broken down by the time you get into, into the late 1960s. The struggle to define independence was not solely unfolding in the diplomatic halls of New York City. It was also unfolding in the streets of African cities. My name is Emma Hunter. I'm a senior lecturer in African history at the University of Edinburgh. I study the intellectual and political history of Tanzania in the 20th century. Part of the story of development and decolonization in late 1960s Africa was urbanization. Cities in Africa swelled after independence as people migrated from the countryside in search of work and opportunities. While African leaders at the UN attempted to define independence on a global stage, artists and intellectuals in African cities were using their voices to define decolonization in African terms. The intellectual and the political go hand in hand, that ideas about self-government, about freedom, about what freedom means, are also their political questions, but they're also intellectual questions. New forums start to emerge in which writers can meet and exchange ideas, um, new writers' conferences, where they talk about what national cultures might look like, what independence means, what decolonizing African culture means in, in practice. New opportunities, too, to make use of, of technologies like like film to reach wider audiences. So there are new spaces in which to produce new kinds of cultural production. The departure of colonial empires left enormous issues that needed to be addressed. Inequality, unemployment, violence. These tensions were playing out in large cities across the continent and were reflected in the films, novels, and newspapers of the period. But increasingly, too, we're seeing new kinds of writing which is grappling with the disappointments of the post-colonial state, which is dealing with the, the fact that society remains incredibly unequal, that poverty continues. But it's dealing, too, with the big social changes that are happening. The big story of the 20th century is the story of urbanization and population growth. So... What is life like in these growing, sprawling cities? New kinds of fiction grappling with those sorts of questions is developing over the, the second half of the 60s on into the, the 1970s. Some forces within African societies attempted to impose a particular vision of national culture and development on their people. For example, in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, in October 1968, the socialist government officially launched a crackdown called Operation Vijana. Vigilantes patrolled the streets seeking out loiterers, profiteers, prostitution, drunkenness, what they perceived as scandalous dress and other actions contrary to their definition of national greatness. Operation Vijana, which means Operation Youth, was an attack on women wearing dress which was thought to be indecent and they were um, dragged off buses and, uh, and beaten, told to um, put on respectable clothes. Male youth were instructed to patrol urban areas and arrest women wearing indecent clothing and artificial hair. The purpose was to eradicate all renegade practices and foster a national Tanzanian culture. 
It was modeled in part on the Cultural Revolution in China, which had begun two years earlier and had violently cleansed China of perceived impure Western influences. But it speaks to some of the conflicts that are going on within cities, who has access to jobs. Very often the, the women who were targeted were young professional women um, going to work in offices. Um, the people who were targeting them were young men for whom independence hadn't brought the things that they expected. It hadn't led to a job in an office, secure employment. And they see these young women prospering. Um, and as the historian Andrew Vasca has shown, um, we should partly understand this uh, movement, Operation Vijana, in that light as partly about the gender anxieties of the post-colonial African city. Yeah, I think by 68, you're sort of midway through, like a, you're almost walking a bridge right for to to the, the the 70s where again a new a new dynamic starts to coalesce and starts to come into into focus and and there's there's multiple paths for people to to, to take and a, a hell of a lot of, of pessimism about what the future is going to actually hold and of course the other thing to say about about 1968 is even in a place like tanzania the fact of events going on elsewhere does reverberate in the tanzanian public sphere and um particularly what's happening in Vietnam, what's happening in Czechoslovakia. Those events are discussed um, and commented upon. And so I think 1968, of course, means different things in different places. Um, 1968 is not the same in Senegal as it is in Tanzania, as it is in Paris. Um, but in the 1960s, as, as indeed much earlier, we're in a a very connected world um, and people across the globe are looking um, at what is happening in other places and reflecting on their own experiences in the light of that. Is that. Even as people are sort of aware of the race riots in the United States or the anti-war protests in the United States or even as they're aware of uh, what's happening in, in Vietnam, uh, those that awareness sort of has a different meaning. Uh, than it does in an American context or in a in a in a Vietnamese context. So I I, I think it's for me it's much more important to understand sort of the processes that are playing out. And I think decolonization is a really fascinating and, and important process. So how does thinking about this history help us today? Well, for one, it is clear that 50 years later, the legacies of colonialism and decolonization linger over much of the continent. Some African nations have achieved stability and prosperity in the decades since independence. Others have been plagued by ethnic tensions, civil war, and state violence. Many of these dynamics have roots in colonial empires and the rhetoric of the decolonization period, both of which were wrapped in the promises of development. We can also see that already by 1968, the limitations of the United Nations, created only 23 years earlier, were plainly visible. The UN was supposed to be the setting that gave voice to developing nations, but the UN was only as effective as the great powers that were willing to support it. One final point. Throughout this history of 1968, we can see how battles over development are also tied to questions of international politics, population movements, and access to jobs and resources. With development rhetoric now in its eighth decade, those realities are worth bearing in mind. I 
been many of the challenges which states faced in the 1960s are still faced today. In some ways, the world has changed dramatically, of course, um, but many of the internal dynamics we've been talking about, yeah, are still um, very current in uh, contemporary Africa. You've been listening to 1968 in Hindsight, a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to bring historical perspective to contemporary issues. 1968 in Hindsight is produced by the LePage Center for History and the Public Interest at Villanova University. For more information on the sources used in this episode or any of our previous episodes, please visit our website, lepage.villanova.edu. Thanks for listening.